Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're here. It's the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Grab your stool. And Jim, poor Bernie, just can't catch a break. All night long, He, even though he won in New Hampshire, he kept hearing how it was closer than it should have been. And Buttigieg is the one with real momentum. But no, wait, it's third place Amy Klobuchar with the momentum. And even, I think, before his speech was done, we found out that he had some bad news waiting for him in Nevada. The Nevada Independent reporting late on Tuesday that the very powerful and very large culinary union has been circulating a flyer which compares six of the Democratic candidates for president on a number of issues. And they call out Bernie Sanders for Medicare for all because they don't like that. Here's what the uh, Independent says. The culinary union, which provides health insurance to 130,000 workers and their family members through a special trust fund, strongly opposes Medicare for all on the basis that it would eliminate the health insurance they have negotiated for over several decades. Health insurance provided by the Culinary Health Fund is considered to be some of the best in the state, and the union even opened a 60,000-square-foot state-of-the-art health clinic a couple of years ago for its members. And uh, it's considered to be one of the most powerful unions in the state, 60,000 members, which is obviously quite significant uh, since Nevada is not the most populous state in the union. So, uh, Jim, I find this quite ironic. Bernie's the uh, the guy who's supposed to be representing the people. You might refer to them as the proletariat. And the workers of the world are uniting in Nevada against him. Yeah, it's really kind of rare, Greg, that you hear a socialist accused of being insufficiently supportive of unions. The other thing that's kind of fascinating is to see the dynamics here, the recognition that despite the, the common storyline of Democrats of all stripes, socialist or non-socialist, oh, you know, America's unions, they're constantly under attack and Republicans are crushing them and nobody stands up for the workers. And then you read this story about them building their own health facility for their members and you look at that and you say, hey, wait a minute, you know, obviously not every industry and not everywhere, but in certain places, unions are, are doing just fine, particularly when it comes to negotiating health care benefits uh, for their members. And what, you know, what was during the fight for Obamacare, the argument of Cadillac plans, the idea of some people have really good health insurance because of their, through their employers. And oftentimes it comes from union members. This was a big priority for unions in their negotiations. And for understandable reasons, you know, unions are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Before you guys go mucking around with the healthcare system, don't mess with the stuff we've got that we like that we feel is taking good care of us. And for you know, one of the rare times conservatives might say, "Yes, unions, you're right. <laughs> you know, we we don't like futzing around with the system and making these big sweeping changes and not really knowing how they're going to shake out. We have to pass the bill so you know what's in it. That kind of stuff. For once, we understand and relate to the unions. Now, the other dynamic in this, which is really kind of fascinating, is. Greg, did you notice that people talk about Harry Reid controlling the unions in Nevada the way Tony Soprano controlled the Bada Bing Club in New Jersey? <laughs> Is it wrong, though? I mean, the last couple of days, there's been this question, will Harry Reid activate the culinary union? And this whole thing of like, there's a button he's got to press or something. You know, it's it's very Emperor Palpatine, witness the power of this fully operational culinary union, you know. Tone to it, which I just think is fascinating. Um, you know, it's not that he controls the entire Nevada caucus, but he has an enormous amount of influence over the, the Nevada caucus. I do think it is kind of interesting 
that the culinary union, which you'd think would be on, on, you know, good, happy terms with, you know, Bernie Sanders, or at the very least, Bernie Sanders would have tried to, you know, uh, make sure his proposals were not at odds with what they wanted. I'm kind of struck by the fact that one of the reasons the culinary union took this stance is they said that their members had been attacked. They talked about their interactions on social media, on Twitter, on emails, phone calls, etc. And it appears the Bernie bros have struck. And it's kind of fair to ask the question of how much is a candidate responsible for the actions of his supporters. But in the case of the Bernie bros, I think a lot of people now doubt that Bernie Sanders is A, unaware of this, and that B, he has absolutely no ability to get anybody else to, t- to tone any of this stuff down. He's got obnoxious, nasty. Look, most of us went through the 2016 campaign. Most of us have run through the alt right and all the other, you know, SOBs and, and you know, horrible human scum on Twitter. And the the Bernie Bros stand out in this crowd for being really <laughs> cruel and obnoxious and antagonistic. I think the single thing that kind of gets my for my run-ins is that there's absolute complete sense that we are living in a Blade Runner type society where corporations control everything, free will is an illusion, we are all slaves of the machine, yada yada yada. People who run into the Bernie Bros don't forget it anytime soon. And at some point, if if Bernie Sanders does falter, you do wonder if this culture of sheer nastiness and some would argue misogyny and some would argue just you know ov- overall just vomitous bile uh, from people who believe that they're helping him uh, might be a factor in in mitigating his uh, support and kind of creating a ceiling of support out there. I don't know about you, Greg, but I just find all this hilarious. <laughs> it is. It's very ironic, given that uh, the workers are supposed to be the ones he's championing here. But yeah, so there's this flyer that goes out and they have five candidates listed, it looks like. And uh, they've got him on health care, good jobs, immigration, and so for Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Steyer, it says protects culinary health care. But for Bernie Sanders, end culinary health care because he wants to require Medicare for all. So uh, interesting phrasing there. And also interesting that Elizabeth Warren's not on there at all. So because since she's Medicare for all, she'd be in the same boat. I'm sure Pete Buttigieg will have some sort of uh, random generated uh, comment there about how the, the culinary union has uh, a sharp Keen insight on the proper way to reform healthcare. So, you know, Greg, the real Medicare for all was the friends we made along the way. Oh, man. Well, we'll get back to Nevada a little bit later in our conversation today because, oh, trust me, it gets more crazy. Let's go to our second good martini. There really wasn't a bad. Uh, Chris Matthews, a little worried. He's a little worried. He's been a little on edge more than usual, actually, the last few days. Uh, he had one. Reaction after Iowa about uh, Bernie doing well there, talking about how he remembers the Cold War, uh, Cuba, and all these other places where, in his words, quote unquote, socialism doesn't freaking work, which he's absolutely right about. And uh, but then he uh, was responding to the results on Tuesday night, uh, where Biden cratered, Warren cratered, Bernie ekes out a win. So Matthew sees two people most likely to emerge as the nominee, and he's not too happy about either one of them. So I don't know. I think in either case, I think it's going to be tough to be Trump. I don't know whether the Democratic Party's ideologically shifted as far to the progressive side as Bernie believes, I think it will. And I think that's the big question. Are we happy to see, is anybody really happy to see a very polarized election coming up and thinks that their side's going to win? I am skeptical of just the left beating just the, the Trump, whatever Trump is. I'm not sure he's conservative. He's whatever he is on the right. I'm not sure he can do that. 
And if it can't, why are we doing that? Why is the Democratic Party doing that? And then again, they can't outsource the nomination to, to, to uh, Mike Bloomberg. That's an outsourcing. That's getting a designated driver, getting somebody to get you home, but not one of your own. Ah, oh, Jim, as you point out in the jolt today, we're going to be piling up delegates pretty quickly here in the next month or so. But uh, as of right now, there aren't that many out there. So to watch the Democratic Party hand-wringing uh, immensely already is uh, also a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, I, I mean, it became very popular to really make fun of Chris Matthews. Uh, I'm going to say it was probably sometime during 2008 with the tingle up my leg. Oh, yes. Um, probably the second most egregious statement about rising Obama next to David Brooks. I loved the pleat on his pants, and I just knew he was going to be a good president because of the way he pleated his pants. Let's just talk about superficial criteria. But, you know, Chris Matthews fell head over heels for Barack Obama, and um, but it's not meant, I, I don't think Chris Matthews wears heels. <laughs> um, but just, you know, you know, the point is, you know, he, Barack Obama was exactly what he wanted to see in a Democratic candidate. And, you know, whatever else we think of him, you have to acknowledge the fact that like, back in 2008, Marcos Molitsis of Daily Coast and Colin Powell both endorsed Barack Obama. I don't think Marcos Molitsis and Colin Powell actually agree on very much at all. But the fact that they both could look at Barack Obama that's something of a blank slate and project onto him what they wanted to see is a really useful skill to have in politics, right? And you, know, and you can probably argue that uh, Bill Clinton did a version of this back in 1992. If every faction in the party thinks, well, yeah, he's saying some stuff that isn't really in line with what we believe, but we know he's really on our side. If you can get both the moderates and the, set and the, the progressives to both believe that, well, then, then you got the nomination. In Bernie Sanders and in Mike Bloomberg, you've got two people who can't fake it to the other side. Bernie Sanders is a socialist. There is nothing for him, for anybody who's still, and I'm making air quotes as I say this, the centrist, but like, if you're a Wall Street Democrat, there are plenty of people who work on Wall Street who still think of themselves as Democrats for social issues or for other stuff. Um, throughout the Obama years, you could be a Howard Schultz Democrat, right, where you liked making a lot of money. But you'd throw money to put solar panels on top of your corporate headquarters or you'd issue a statement about the joys of diversity and we love our gay employees and all that kind of, you know, um, so you, you'd throw bones to the social liberal left. But, you'd, you know, in order to you, your your sense of the top of the economic pyramid was still pretty secure. Bernie Sanders isn't cool with that. Bernie Sanders wants to tear down the whole pyramid. Bernie Sanders wants to tear down the whole system. And that freaks out a whole bunch of people who are elite Democrats, and for good reason. The flip side, Mike Bloomberg is the embodiment of that elite Democrat, right? He is Mr. Wall Street. He made his fortune on Wall Street. Now, even though there's a whole bunch of stuff he did that we on the right don't like, the, the soda ban, his vehement opposition to the Second Amendment, uh, as I talked about yesterday, his whole attitude of, well, there's really one right answer. I have it, and everybody else who opposes me is doing it out of bad faith, or they're just stupid, or uh, his comments that places like Pueblo and Colorado Springs don't have roads. You know, guys, I went to Colorado Springs. They got plenty of roads. They, they, they got a whole Air Force Academy out there. There's, there's buildings and everything, Mr. Mayor. You know, this, this kind of arrogant, elitist attitude, for obvious reasons, that doesn't sell to a whole bunch of people even people who are Democrats and who are, you know, ordinarily inclined to support the Democratic nominee. So if you're a Democrat, you want neither one of these guys. You, if you just want to win, you want somebody who can bring a little bit of appeal to both of those groups, but doesn't get to either extreme. 
maybe Klobuchar is it. Uh, Buttigieg doesn't seem to be that. And so you're looking at that and you're left scratching your head. There might be nobody who unifies the party. So it's kind of fun to watch the Chris Matthews of the world squirm, much like James Carville, much like a bunch of these other folks. You know, Democrats probably ought to be listening to him, but I think they've probably learned to tune out Chris Matthews because, you know, Greg, almost everybody does. <laughs> Do you think most Democrats look at Mike Bloomberg that way? I, I, I see him as almost an opportunistic Republican when he ran for mayor in 2001, just to because he had no chance of being the Democratic nominee and no one was running as a Republican to succeed Rudy Giuliani. And then with all the circumstances of, of 9-11, he was almost an accidentally elected mayor. And then he drifted independent and then eventually uh, Democratic. So I feel like that's kind of where he's always been rather than uh, a designated driver, as Matthews calls him. Well, the two things that jump out. The first is I, I believe that when Mike Bloomberg chose to run as a Republican in 2001, he was doing it on a principled stance. And that principle was he should be some party's nominee. <laughs> He didn't care which one, but some party should nominate him. And eh, there wasn't really anybody running in the, uh, on the Republican side who mattered. Um, the other thing, which is what people forget about 2000, because again, for obvious reasons, there were Republicans who were not, you know, Rudy Giuliani's second term was coming to an end. Republicans were not immediately in love with him. Um, and there was a little bit of wariness and a general sense that this was not a guy who'd ever really been all that active in Republican party politics at the national level, at the city level. He was just some rich guy who came in and said, hey, I've decided I'm Republican. I've, I've been a Republican for 10 minutes. Nominate me. And <laughs> you might, it was not a certainty that he was going to win in 2001. Obviously, September 11th was actually primary day in New York City. They canceled it as soon as the attacks, we became clear the attacks were going on. Uh, postponed it a few weeks. And there were a bunch of Democrats. I want to say it was Mark Green, but I'm going to go back and look. But one of the Democratic nominees had been running on the theme too much city spending and too much of the city's focus was on Manhattan. The other boroughs had been shortchanged and it was time to focus on the other boroughs. 9-11 happens. The country's shocked. The city's shocked. The city is traumatized. Finally, enough time goes by where it's okay. We want to have this primary. We want to, you know, we got to put mayor at some point in November. Let's, let's go back to, you know, politics begins and this democratic candidate gives with other than like a, a cursory, our thoughts and prayers are with everyone who was affected by the 9-11 attacks goes out and gives the same speech, that Manhattan is getting too much attention, that the outer boroughs are getting shortchanged. We need to make sure enough money is going back to the outer. It's as if 9-11 changed nothing for him. That's what the Democrats threw up against Mike Bloomberg in 2001. So it's not a surprise that Mike Bloomberg, oh, and he's also spending a hillion jillion dollars. But even beyond that, Mike Bloomberg was like the candidate who recognized that something terrible had happened to the city, something unprecedented, and that the focus of the mayor's office over the next four years, a big chunk of it was going to have to be focused on repairing lower Manhattan. And so that was the circumstance. So a lot of these times when you see somebody rising through the ranks or something like that, look at who they were up against and who's been forgotten by history. And that explains a great deal of their appeal when you consider what the other options were. Yes. And if you're too young to remember the immediate aftermath of 9-11, this may be hard to imagine now, but Rudy Giuliani was the most popular person in America. Times man of the year. He was. He was. <laughs> and so he uh, enthusiastically endorsed Bloomberg, and that made a huge difference. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. think he'll be endorsing Bloomberg this time, but that's just a hunch. <laughs> not only will he not, like, it's really bizarre to watch it. Because there was also a sense that, yeah, Bloomberg, like, that these two guys genuinely liked each other, that whatever wariness Giuliani had had evaporated quickly uh, after 9-11. And he you know, generally was supportive of Bloomberg, at least at the beginning of the, the, the early years. Uh, and I remember you know, Mike Bloomberg 
hosted the, the 2004 Republican convention was in New York. Bloomberg gave a speech. Bloomberg endorsed George W. Bush for reelection. Um, there was never a sense that, you know, Mike Bloomberg was a conservative Republican, but he was, you know, saying all the right things that recently is, you know, 2004. And uh, as somebody pointed out, if Rudy Giuliani had not done anything after, after 9-11, there'd be statues of him all across the country. And I don't think there will be the, <laughs> that many statues of him other than maybe a garden at the Trump presidential library and casino, which will be built somewhere. So many ways I could go with that. But uh, let's just move on to our, our crazy martini. Let's go back to Nevada, because, Jim, we were just basking yesterday in the fact that uh, New Hampshire was able to count the vast majority of its vote on the same day that the people actually voted. It's a novel concept and one that Iowa was surprised by. Uh, but now it looks like Nevada, which is next on the list uh, on Saturday, February 22nd, is their caucus. And they could be headed towards an Iowa-like night. Uh, according to Axios, there are growing concerns that the Nevada caucuses could be a repeat of the chaos that hit Iowa's caucus process earlier this month. Uh, Nevada was going to originally use the same app used in Iowa, but has since scrapped those plans. Organizers told the AP that uh, state party officials emphasized that the caucus tool is not an app, but did not explain how it was different. Compounding matters, Nevada, according to Axios, will offer early voting in its multi-stage caucus process, which Iowa did not attempt. Beyond that, Frank Luntz tweeting uh, just last night, I just got back from Nevada, and who boy have I got stories for you. This past Saturday, the Nevada Democrats had a meeting with precinct captains and still couldn't show them a demo of the iPad app they'll use on caucus night to submit totals. As a backup to their app, Nevada precinct captains will use paper ballots and count them by hand. Because, just like in Iowa, the caucus night app they plan to use has not been tested at scale. Jim, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, and, and I'm really in a state of like, guys, you can't, you know, look, I, I'm I'm right of center. I, I'm not a Democrat. I don't, you know, I, I've only voted for a few Democrats in my life for lower tier offices in the past, I find it hard to believe I'll vote for many Democrats in the future. You guys don't have to listen to me, but on behalf of America, on behalf of democracy, on behalf, on faith in our the freedom and the fairness of our elections, guys, please don't screw this up. Please don't have two of the first three contests having confusion and disputes and uh, contested results and, and all of these things that make you say, well, are we certain that that person really won or are we certain that all the votes were counted and all that stuff? The fact that they're doing with paper, you know what? That's good. I'm glad to hear that because, you know, dear young listeners, they've had caucuses before there was an internet. <laughs> caucuses were going on in the 1970s. They didn't, you don't need, you used to need paper, pencil, a big pile of ballots and maybe a calculator. Right. I think they'd moved on from slide rules back then, right? You, <laughs> maybe, you know, the, if, if you knew how to use them, you could use an abacus too, okay? You know, this I, you don't need any of this kind of stuff. Um, if you have it and it works, wonderful, great. We all love that stuff. Let's keep in mind, people who volunteer for elections uh, as poll watchers uh, to, to work behind the desk, to do the, particularly in, in a party primary, so like you're generally dealing with volunteers or maybe they're getting like a, a per diem, you know, you're not dealing with people who, these are not full-time jobs. These are, you know, temporary jobs, only need to be done around election time. You can train them and you hope everybody shows up for the training session and, and all that kind of stuff. But generally you're getting volunteers and you're getting people who are a lot of senior citizens. God bless senior citizens. My dad volunteers as a election, uh, works for elections. He's been a poll watcher, all that kind of stuff. 
you know, these are all good folks who mean well. We've probably all seen senior citizens have trouble with the remote control. Wait, which one is input? Wait, which setting do I want it to be? You know, that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not quoting my dad there at all. Uh, (laughs) This this sense that you don't want to give them this state-of-the-art app with three different codes you have to input and a 14-step process and all, you know, you don't want to design this for, for engineers at Microsoft, you know, you don't, or, or, uh, or, or Apple or something like that. You don't want anything where you got to take it to the genius bar at the Apple store to make sure that it's working correctly. Right? You're not going to have time to do that on caucus night. On caucus night, everybody shows up and everybody hopes to know at least who won their caucus place that evening. And then they want to drive home or, or walk home or however they're getting home. And they want to then watch the results that evening. So it's got to be relatively easy to tabulate. And they used to do this with phones. And I mean landlines, right? I remember watching on C-SPAN. Somebody would just go to a payphone and dial it in and tell them, yeah, we got this many votes for this person. And they'd go back and verify it through the mail and all that kind of stuff. But like the whole point of it was that you could be an ordinary citizen and you needed minimize, minimal specialized training to know how to run this, how to tabulate the votes and how to make everything work. <laughs> Nevada, the eyes of the country are on you. Greg and I have enjoyed mockingly and sneeringly saying, way to go, Nevada, way to go for a lot of years now. We want to put that to rest. We want to believe, as the poster on, on Mulder's wall used to say, please don't louse this up. Please don't make it a complicated you know, uh, app or something. Please treat your volunteers with respect and please give us results in a reasonably timely fashion. Alex Jones has enough material to work with as is. Um, <laughs> and, and just a general sense that like, I mean, I don't like caucuses. I think pre- much prefer primaries. The turnout is much higher. I don't think registering who you want to represent your party should take multiple hours on a, on a winter's night. Um, it's not good for people who have to work nights. It's not good for people who have to you know, get babysitters for kids, all that kind of stuff. And I think if they have a set, you know, it look, already looks like this might be the end of the Iowa caucus, probably the end of the Iowa caucus going first. And this might be the end of the caucus system entirely. And uh, you know, if, if Nevada goes bad, then yeah, this will be the end of, of caucus. Maybe that'd be good in the long run, but God, it's be a real absolute pain in the neck uh, and very depressing if this happens for two of the first three contests. To say nothing of the fact that Vladimir Putin would be laughing, he took us off. <laughs> Can't Harry Reid unleash a calculators union? Does that exist out there that... Uh... <laughs> Make sure this all gets tabulated correctly. Who do you think gave him the black eye, Greg? <laughs> and finally, um, I, I, we talked about the Bernie bros earlier. I saw a couple of them on Twitter the other day uh, when they found out that there was another suspect app involved. And some of the comments were essentially, so do we congratulate Buttigieg now or do we actually have to wait until it's over? <laughs> See, that that's not fair to Buttigieg, right? What if Buttigieg goes out and genuinely wins it? So. So, you know, we had an election. Oh, yeah, who won? Well, how, who won? Your, your assumption of who won is, well, who got the most votes? The idea of your caucus system, well, is we have multiple rounds. We have this cutoff. If the candidate you prefer doesn't make it through the first round, you can then switch to another or go home or then horse trade to build, amalgamate into a larger Voltron-like candidate. <laughs> and then you apply the calculus. And then it depends if Sagittarius is rising you know, <laughs> Or you could just go, who got the most votes? That sounds like it works. <laughs> Amazing. Jim, only one more day this week. Uh, I'm sure it'll be fascinating. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Way to go, Nevada. We're watching. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review. And we'll see you Friday for the Three Martini Lunch.